Hey, welcome to episode 74 of the Google Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. Hope you're well. Before we chat with Mr. Hamish Stewart, uh, I just wanted to let you know that you can subscribe to the Gig Life Podcast. Go to thegiglifepodcast.com, scroll to the bottom of that first page and click on the red button. Pick your favorite podcast app and hit that subscribe button. You can even set it to automatic download so all the new episodes get delivered straight to your app without you even doing anything. Also, if you dig this episode or any of the others, please share it with a friend or on your socials. Um, the Gig Life Podcast is free. You don't have to pay anything ever, but if you find value in the Gig Life Podcast, you can securely donate. Go to thegigglifepodcast.com and click on the donate button. You can give as little or as much as you like. Any donation will go back into creating the great content for this podcast. Okay, episode 74, Hamish Stewart, here we go. today is Australian drumming legend, Mr. Hamish Stewart. Born and raised in Sydney, Hamish had the idea very early on that if he could just play drums and make a living, survive as a musician, then that's what he wanted. Hamish has gone on to play with Ayers Rock, Marsha Hines, Billy Fields, Doug Parkinson, Barry Leaf, Jackie Ozarski, Mike Nock, The Catholics, Lucy Thorne, Jade McRae, Don Walker, and many, many more. Known for his musicality, his versatility, reliability, his wit and deliver, the hang, and always beautiful sounding drums, it's pretty clear that this is why he's been able to survive as a musician for as long as he has. In this chat, we talk about his life, his experiences as a working musician in Australia, and of course we talk a little bit about drums. Hamo tells some great stories too, except for the one that he forgets. But we had a special guest fill in the blanks on that one. Hamish made me laugh a lot. But we got pretty serious too. He cooked me a mean vegan dinner, and after spending just those few hours with Hamish, I walked away feeling a lot wiser. Ladies and gentlemen, please open up your ears and let in some of the life and times of Mr. Hamish Stewart. Cheers. <laughs> Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Lovely, mate. Great to be here. How are you doing? Very good. Um, you guys are halfway through a um, bit of a detox at oh. the moment. No, <laughs> no coffee. Yeah, no coffee. No, yeah, you'll have to keep me awake. No, you're right. I yeah. had to peel you off the wall when yeah. I walked in, eh? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. No, we're um, having a February off everything, coffee, um, food, water. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no alcohol, no... Meat, no dairy, no coffee is right. the hardest thing yep. we've decided today. Yeah. Yeah. Halfway in. Yeah, halfway in. Yep. Halfway to go. Mm. I mean, I've had, um, yeah, 
I'm, I had years of sobriety and things like that in the past, but this little month is always tricky in the middle of yeah, right. a sea of good times. And, right. Yeah. What, what brought it on? Um, I think um, Em likes to do it once a year. Yep. Um, just to see if she can, I think. <laughs> mm. um, and she can. And so I do it with her because I think that's a good thing to do. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Rather, I mean, you know, I could hardly be eating roast lamb out here while she's eating nuts and berries and, yeah. you know, this, the um, aroma of s- strong coffee coming from the kitchen <laughs> would drive anyone nuts. It's not really fair, is it? <laughs> yeah, not, not really. So we do it together. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, man. Yeah. Um, how's the music scene been this, this first month and a half? Uh, yeah, good. Mm. Um, for me, it's been good. Um, I start the year <laughs> so we, we, we sort of have a bit of a joke about this because we start the year doing these Beatles shows we've been doing for almost 10 years now they say um, at the Opera House so we do this year we did the 1st, 2nd and 3rd of January and it's one of those gigs that's backlined and you know it's with an orchestra and stars and this whole sort of deal. And I get the ferry over from Manly with a backpack and you know, <laughs> three drumsticks and yeah. a set of brushes. Yeah. Big lug. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to the Opera House Concert Hall and, and I do those three nights and and it's really great and it's usually sold out and it's fun, it's a great band, Rex Go and... Paul Burton, uh, Tony Mitchell, bass player. It's a great, fabulous band. Glenn Cunningham, Rob Wolford goes on and on. Um, and uh, but then yeah, but then it's like you know the next night I'm schlepping drums upstairs or something, you know, <laughs> in some gig that you yep. don't want to know about. Yeah, you know. yeah. So, but anyway, yeah, it's a great, it's a great start to the year. It's a fun start and. Um, it's always great seeing everyone, and and so yeah, January's been great. Um, so just on the Be- yeah. that Beatles thing, yeah, are you doing like a greatest hits thing every year, or are you picking an album and performing? It's that it's, album. It's a different thing. It's it's produced by uh, three producers um, uh, that have kind of okay. Can we cut for a sec? Yeah, I'll just can. That's That's all good. I always forget to turn my phone off. Be talking away and ding or brrr <laughs> yeah. or brrr. It's hard to mix that stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> Even yeah. with my noise gate skills. But yeah. <laughs> I think there's a few on a couple of sessions I've done. I, I hear it and I go, that's definitely not a triangle. Yeah. Or have you ever heard that, you know, the, I don't think it happens so much now with these phones, but the older phones used to get like this... Um, Oh, it's like a transmitting noise. Yeah. It's just like a buzz type thing. I think so. Yeah, I, yeah. That would go to tape or go to, yeah, go yeah. to digital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They yeah. go, everyone's phone's off. I go, I'm not turning my phone off. <laughs> Don't go, you know who I am? What's that sound? Don't you know who I am? Yeah, I'm turning yeah, my phone right. off. I'm not turning my phone <laughs> off. You've got to be kidding. I might get a gig better than this one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, sorry. You continue. Are we, ro- are we rolling? Still yeah, going? yeah. Um, I'll probably keep all this too. It's funny. Oh, yeah, why not? It's funny. This is the good shit. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, they so they they come up with these ideas, and of course now these days they're sort of polling audiences for what they want to hear, you know. So, which, I mean, to me, I, I you know, I, to me, I think if you're doing something, you're presenting something to an audience. You're sort of not asking them what they want to hear, you know. In, uh, to me, it seems weird. But anyway, yep. they, that's how they they don't do it totally like that. They have a concept. Like we do the White Album, for instance. We do okay. the whole White Album from yep. beginning to end, and it's actually really great fun. And, mm-hmm. You know, we don't wear the outfits, and we're not trying to be the Beatles, but we do play the music with respect. The solos, the guitar things are all note for note. Oh wow! You know, like because. Paul Burton and Rex go play the guitars and they, they, you know, they go, oh, you know, George used this guitar, you know, so I have this guitar. You yep. know, it's everyone's opportunity to roll out their gear, you know. Mm. Um, but it's beautiful. Do you do the same thing with the drums? N- not try at and, all. Try and ringo it up? Or? Not at all. Not I, at well, all. <laughs> I do actually, I mean, yep. except I play Gretsch drums, so, okay. you know, there's a big problem right there. Um <laughs> But uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I love his playing. I love so many drummers playing, uh, but I love his playing. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I do. I, I, I don't, I don't overdo it, I don't think, but I certainly, it's very respectful. Yep. Like I, there's no kind of, there's nothing in there that he wouldn't sort of play, you know, like I'm not playing any sort of, 64th notes on the bass drum uh, not know. that I could anyway I know, I know what you're saying yeah I, yep. I don't chop out when I get a moment or yep. you know have you seen that there's a video <clears throat> and I'll try and find it and I'll put it in the show notes of this it's Ringo being interviewed by somebody I think yeah. he's a guitar player and, and he's being asked about how he plays Come, Come Together yeah I've seen it yeah and I've played it wrong all the time. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm one of the guys that have played it incorrectly all right. the time. Right. So you go right, left, front, left, front, left. Yeah, yeah. Of the well, left. And, and what's really weird, well, I don't know so much the sticking because it's, it's you know. Uh, I think he says he starts with his he, left hand. Yeah. On, on, the, that, floor on the floor tom. tom. Yeah, and yeah, comes yeah. up, right? Yeah. Well, I've always thought it's been going down. Yeah, yeah. The rock goes from the top to the bottom, but it goes from the bottom to the top. And the other funny thing is that I'm left-handed and I play right-handed. Oh, right. Which is a whole other story. But so I'm in the same boat as him and I've often um, had trouble because I start things with my left hand. <laughs> I start things with my left hand right. that I can't finish, you know. But, I mean, I start things with my left hand quite a bit as a kid you know just getting playing the drums i would start fills with my left hand and yep and my right hand mm-hmm. um and so it got me in a bit of trouble here and there just with sort of like well what you have to make a decision somewhere or now, now i've sort of come to terms with playing ideas that i want to play in any anyhow i can get them out so it's not yep. so much a problem but there were collisions in the old days you know when i was trying to do things so-called correct correctly, you know, mm. in terms of sticking and things like that, yep. things that I'd seen other people do, that I would hear a way of playing them that would incorporate starting with my left hand, for instance. Right. Whereas when you see them on a video, you go, oh, he goes, he plays like that, leads with his right. Naturally, he's right-handed. You right. Know? 
but for me, and so there's this kind of. Uh, oh, in yourself, you yeah, mean? And, I was, yeah, I was going to ask and, you who's been, who was looking over your shoulder, saying, yeah, "Hey, no, <laughs> internally, me, yeah, right. it's for me, yeah, it's my my internal sort of, you know, yeah, um, judge that, going that little other Hamish on your other shoulder, yeah. going, "Come on, mate, that's good, that's good. No, that's <laughs> bad, that's bad, that's really bad. Yeah. No, that's good. Oh, come on, man. Yeah. Well, while we're on that, then, so you you um you're a left-handed drummer, you play right-handed, and you play with your Right hand playing your high hat. Yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah. why why did you not just go with playing completely left handed? Or was nobody or was there nobody doing it? Well I And it hard was, hard to get a kit. I had never seen a left handed drum. I'd never seen anyone set up left handed. Oh right. And um I <coughs> mentioned to you before that we'd probably um I'd be chatting about my brother John because mm. he's He's eight years older than me and he's a musician. And he introduced me to sort of basically everything when I was a child, uh, musically speaking. And um, uh, and I just had no idea that the hi-hat was on the other side and it was set up the other way if you're left-handed. And none of the album covers seemed to Mm. left-handed drummers on them that, I, that you, you know, you didn't see many drum kits in those days. We're talking about, you know, late 60s and, you know. So, and when I actually had a couple of formal lessons from a guy called Jackie Dugan, who was um, a Scottish drummer who'd moved out here and I think his nickname was the Drunken Scotsman. He was, he was a co-owner of Drum City and City Road with Derek Fairbrass and... Or he used to work there. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if he actually was a co-owner, but he was there a lot and he taught out of there. And he was a uh, incredible kind of big band drummer and from the UK and had made a big name there, probably as a drinker <laughs> as well as a drummer, <laughs> and which may have had something to do with why I was living in Australia, but I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but I remember... Uh, cold, rainy winter night, getting off the bus at City Road and uh, um, buzzing the buzzer of Drum City and him coming the door and coming to the door and opening the door and leaning down to me. And I think I was probably still in my school uniform or something and he went, you must be Hamish. And he almost burnt my eyebrows off with this sort of <laughs> alcohol kind of, you know, not um, not to be, I don't, I don't mean to be unkind or disrespectful because yeah. he was an incredible. But as a child, you know, it was like, my God, you know, you must be Mr. Dugan, sir. <laughs> anyway, we went in. And he he taught on practice pads, and they were all set up right-handed, and I just like so it was right-handed. Right. Everything was right-handed, so I just played right-handed, and then. I played in bands. We luckily at school, I had a couple of friends, and we just we played, you know, Hendrix and all the things that we loved and things that we were learning, and James Taylor and the Beatles and you name it. What was whatever was happening before one of them started writing original music, which was probably pretty awful, but introduced us to time signatures and stuff like that. Yep. But um. But then I remember seeing someone somewhere with a bunch of us and the guy on stage was set up left-handed. And as a juvenile 
schoolboy, I nudged my friends and went, no, you know, like, what's wrong with him? He's got his drums all set up the wrong way. And someone said, he's left-handed. <laughs> and I went, he's what? <laughs> you know, you're kidding. Mm. So um, Mr. Smarty Pants, you know, dissolved into the floor at that point. I was just <laughs> like, you're absolutely joking. Um, and then... Did you start working that out in your head then, like watching how he was playing and thinking... Well, I just went, well, he's doing I, exactly what I, do, but what I should be doing, I guess, except I'd gone so far down the right-handed path. Mm. And I did actually think... I mean, this was sort of years... I was still at school. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of... I was playing um, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was on the Bill Risby podcast or somebody um, on one of the podcasts said that, you know, music was their salvation. and it's Yeah, that was, that was Bill. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly was for me because mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was no good at sport. I was pretty hopeless academically because I, was, I really wasn't that interested. I was interested in English. I liked English. And um, which is good because I speak English, <laughs> as you can tell. Um, no, uh, it, I liked English, and um, but I loved music, and it seemed that everything was in the way of that. Like just, it just seemed everything. All I wanted to do was I knew I wanted to play, and I invested a lot of time before school, after school, during school, in some of the... As I got older, in school, you know, piking periods and I'd go up to the music department with a practice pad and practice. Like, just... It was an obsession. Mm -hmm. And it was, like, it was also for me a thing like, I can't do anything else. Um, And hopefully this will work. You know, this... Hopefully this music thing will will be a way for me to exist in the world. Mm. I, I mean, I really needed it. I, was dis, I don't know if I mentioned I'm dyslexic as well, so it was kind of, you know, it, 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 was, it was troublesome. And it was also a great way to meet girls, mm. you know, like playing music and, you know, having... And I had friends. I had a group of friends and, you know, it was social and it was actually a, a very important part. So I had... By the time I, I realised that I'd shot off down the path on the wrong side of the drum kit, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'd, already, I'd already been practising a lot and leading with my right hand and all the sort of, you know, come across Elvin Jones by this stage, so I'm sort of listening to jazz music, so I'm playing the ride beat with my right hand. I, you know, I, it was all happening that way. Mm. And I, 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 you know, came across... Uh, Billy Cobham, who was the, one of the first sort of ambidextrous guys around um, that we heard about, and um, I investigated that. But that was all too much for my brain, you know. It was just like, I just want to play, you know, I'm just playing the drums, let's just stay the way we are. And, yep. And now um, probably in the last, um, I don't know, probably quite a while actually I've been utilizing more left hand stuff mm-hmm. more consciously rather the rather than it being um, I should 
I should be doing it this way or I should be doing it that way. It's more like however I can do it is how I'm going to do it. Mm. You know, however I can make that sound that I want to make, that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, now, can we go right back now? Because I think... I think sure. Um, now, where were you born? I was born here in Sydney. Yep. Yeah. East all the, all the way through. Mm-hmm. I've lived here. And your brother's musical, yeah. the rest of your family? Yeah. Um, my dad was a businessman, um, successful businessman. And um, my mum was a photographer mm-hmm. uh, and she stopped all that once she got married. And it would, you know, it was, a, it was back in the sort of Victorian age when women, did, you know, well, a lot of women didn't work once they were married to the breadwinner and all that sort of thing was going on. And, so she stopped all that and, and raised three children. And um, and my brother, who was uh, very, very good academically, he could have been a doctor or a lawyer, but he took up the guitar. And they, I, I know that my father was expecting him to be, oh, it's this guy too. Um, <laughs> we've got him everywhere. It's all good. Um, um, oh, hang on. So how many people listened to the podcast just looked at their phone and went, I just oh, got yeah, a text a message. It's, got, it's a gig. Oh, it's a cancellation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's my gig. Yeah. <laughs> that's my gig. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Dad, um, when John decided he wanted to be a musician, he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it, you know, because he couldn't help him. I think every father wants to help their son, you know, like come on board in the business or I can introduce you to so-and-so or whatever, you know. And when my brother said, I'm going to pursue a career in music, it was like, well, how do you do that? You know, like, and then some years later, his other son (laughs) says the same thing. It's Mm. like, what are you guys ganging up on me or something (laughs) like, you know. And I do remember him saying... Um, you know, it's funny, these things that, uh, I think Bill said it too as well. Um, you know, these pivotal points in your life where somebody says one thing, you know, just one, it can be negative or positive and you carry it with you forever. You know, it, it, it impacts on your reality, on the way you, um, let alone on the way you deal with yourself, you know, but, but it also impacts externally on the way you are with other people but um I remember my father saying well you know I don't know anything about it Hamish but if if you're going to be a musician then you better be a bloody good one and that's all he could say Uh, I mean that goes for anything I guess really and um um and so that that was one thing, and the and the other thing too was once I realised that all you had to do was kind of make a living. Um, <laughs> all you had to do was make a living. Well, <laughs> it seemed easy when you, you know, seventeen because you're living at home, you know, <laughs> and the fridge is always full. But um, when I realised that it's about making a living, I, I my sights were were set fairly low. It wasn't like I wanted to be the greatest drummer in the world. I just wanted to make a living playing music. If I could 
survive as a musician, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to do that. Mm. So why drums? Um, well, that's that's a, a good question, actually. Um, um, I have vivid memories of standing on the fireplace hearth, strumming a tennis racket, um, you know, five inches above the floor on the little hearth of the fireplace, um, along to kind of Beatle music and probably Burt Bacharach because my parents were into Burt Bacharach as well, as I am as well. Um, and, uh, and, and it was more the rhythm that got me. I, I loved, I, and I loved the singing. Like I probably, it was probably, if anything, I would have been a singer because I actually love singing and I used to sing all the time. I don't sing so much anymore, but just around the house sort of thing, like I would sing all the time. And uh, love songs. I just love songs. I love singers, I love songwriters. I love a great song. And, um, but my brother used to rehearse his bands and he went through jug band music, blues, R&B, jazz, and then he was gone. And, and that was over a period of about sort of five years or something. He'd sort of have this kind of, he was still at school. He had a, um, a jug band um, with a, a jug, you know, and they'd play all this kind of weird hillbilly stuff and there was T-box bass and all this thing. And I still remember songs from them. And I still love that, you know, when I hear those old things like, um, what is it? If, if, um, if, uh, if, if, if you're the Viper, there's some t um, uh, jug band tune. Mm -hmm. And I hear those things and they just make me laugh and they feel great and they played great because, you know, these people made, it was their life, you know, they played it great. So totally committed to that. And um, I, I loved it. But any time there was drums, I could see that the energy was coming from there. And I couldn't pick up it. When they had a break and they'd all go out and smoke a joint or something, I couldn't pick up a guitar and play a G minor seven, but I could go behind the drums and whack a cymbal. And I mean, I was a little boy mm. back then. And uh, if you can believe it. And, uh, um, and I would try and imitate what they did, what the drummers did. And I think I must have had something going on because they would then go, oh, you know, hold the sticks like this and do that. And, oh, look, he's, you know, he's doing it, he's doing it, you know. So I got encouragement, which every child wants, you know. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, that was the main influence. Just the drums is where it's all going on. You know, when you're a kid, it's like that's the thing that makes the noise and makes the energy and... Mm. makes them dance in the end. I mean, that was the thing for me. It was like, you know, you got out on a gig and you played and they start dancing and you just lean in a bit tougher and they dance a bit harder. It's like, man, you've got these people in the pocket. It's going to, it's going, you know, it's great. It's just the best, the best feeling. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. Who was your first drum teacher? Or was it the guy well, well, the drum Jack, city? Jackie was the first guy. I mean, he yep. introduced me to... Um, um, more whiskey. <laughs> no, he, he introduced <laughs> me to um, uh, 
you know, just very, very basic, um, you know, quarter notes, eights, yep. triplets and sixteenth notes and a few, you know, single strokes and double strokes and stuff like that. And I think I literally only had a few lessons with him. Mm-hmm. But then I had some lessons. I had about nine months of lessons with a guy called Barry Woods. And he used to teach with a, out of the same place in Randwick with, with another great jazz drummer. They were both great jazz drummers. Um, Alan Turnbull, uh, who is an incredible Australian jazz drummer. And uh, I had about, you know, sort of give or take a few weeks, a weekly lesson with Baz. And he introduced me to everything. He introduced me to, you know, Ted Reed syncopation, stick control, all the kind of drum bibles and the ways of using, utilising those books and uh, and regular practice. And he could do it all. Like that was the other thing. For me as a schoolboy, he'd go, here's a five-stroke roll, you know, right, right, left, left, right, left, left, right, right, left. And then... He'd go, and you practice it like this, open to close, and eventually it sounds like this. And he'd play them meticulously, really fast, and they'd sound great. And I would go away going, I'll give anything to even just get half as fast as that. And I would work really hard from that point on to try and do that. And um, and it was really... and, and. and I was trying to explain it to a young friend, a friend of ours who has a young boy who's just taken up the sax and we're having coffee the other morning and I know we weren't The other month. Coffee. Ah, the other right. month. You're busted. No, no, I actually had tea that morning. I did. Does Em know this? Yeah, no, she was there. Yeah, yeah she was there. No, shush. Um, and uh, uh, young Jet. How old's Jet, Em? Eight, okay. Eight. So thank you, darling. So he's uh, eight and he's playing the saxophone and he's a really great little kid, but he had his, you know, electronic game there at the cafe. And, and uh, so I said, how's it going, you know? And he's like, oh, he's a bit sheepish. And I thought, oh, it's the practice, you know? And I said to him, you know, and it's, it must be so hard. And I was saying to him, it must be so hard because he's got this digital game. It's got. He was explaining it to me and it's got 38 games on it and you just flick between one and the other and mm. you want to play one. I played a game with him and, you know, I think this, that's hard and then to go to the saxophone and play yep. a scale and try and get a sound and your embouchure and the whole thing. And I said to him, look, if you do a bit of practice you'll get better and when you get better you'll get this feeling like it's so great I said it's so great I mean if you can just if you can believe me you know you'll really get something from it if you practice Mm. just a bit you know like just you don't have to do that much but just a bit regularly every whatever they're asking you to do and you'll you'll get a you'll get a buzz out of it it's really great so, yeah, I mean, I was like that. I just, once I, once it actually, oh, my God, it's, it's happening, you know. The rebound on the double strokes and the whole thing was like, wow, wow, whoa. Yeah, whoa. it's working. Yeah, it's yeah. working. You yeah. Know? So, I, yeah, I was thrilled to bits to be able to do it, any of it, yeah. you know. 
because I hadn't been too successful in too much else. Yeah, right. You know. Mm. Um, who were some of the drummers you were starting to listen to or find out about? Well, that 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 again was um, a, a blur. Of, I mean, mm-hmm. I have these these pivotal again pivotal moments, um, but. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was uh, my mum and dad had a record player downstairs, and they would play. As I said, you know, we had we had the sounds of silence. You know, Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel. We had Burt Backrack. We had some Beatle music. Um, we had Peter Paul and Mary. You know, we had all that stuff. We had Spike Mill. We had quite a lot of comedy records <laughs> as well. Were you going to say Spike Milligan? Yeah, I was going to say Spike. About Jelly the Witch. Yeah, yeah, you got yeah. The best. All of it. We just, you know, we we. The, it was kind of great, like the, and so I, so in terms of drummers, there was all that, like there was the LA session guys coming on, you know, on the Burt Backrack stuff, and. Um. But. I was into you know John Bonham, Mitch Mitchell. You know, all the rock guys, because that was the time, you know. Um, And my brother gave me, oh, yeah, that's right. Early on when I was getting, like, the idea of playing the drums was something that I wanted to do. Um, He gave me Mercy, 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 Buddy Rich Live at the Club, I think it's called. and on that record, Buddy does Channel One Suite and themes from West Side Story and a bunch of other things. And I, that, I mean, I hadn't heard any of that big band thing before and that just floored me. I went, oh, my God, this is this is living, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I was just really excited by that. I was trying to play those things. I didn't know how to do it, and, but I could sing the solos off that record. Not the drum solos, <laughs> all the solos, and uh, and all the section parts, and I'm, you know I could mimic it all, but I couldn't play it. And then I think my brother thought, as the year went on, the last thing he wanted in the house was a big band drummer, <laughs> and so the next year for Christmas I got an Elvin Jones record, uh, which was called Dear John C, which is basically a kind of quintet record, I think. And uh, with Charlie Mariano playing alto, and it's just the most beautiful record, swinging record, and um, I think it was the first record that he made as a leader. Perhaps I, I'd have to check this, but I'm pretty sure it's after Coltrane died and um, Elvin started his own solo career as a band leader himself. And um, but yeah, that that was a really swinging record, and. And that turned me on to that. And that, I became infatuated with Elvin Jones at this point. And, and What fun- was it, his, his power? Well, he's kind of, he's not too heavy on this. Mm. I, I, it, it was funny because John, I had a bedroom past John. You know, I had to walk past John's bedroom to get to my bedroom, mm-hmm. which was upstairs, right? And... The stairs were creaky, so you could hear people coming up the stairs. And I just vividly remember often 
walking to my room and John's door opening and him grabbing me by my shirt, you know, my shoulder and dragging me into the room and sitting me down and going, listen to this. And it'd be Wes Montgomery or it'd be Bob Dylan or something. I'd go, oh, yeah, this is great, you know. And I remember him playing Coltrane and I just thought, this just sounds like scrambled eggs. Like I don't even know, you know, who, what. I don't know, you, can I go now sort of thing. <laughs> and then later on I started sneaking into his room and putting these records on and and then at, I'm not quite sure the chronology of it when I got the Dear John C record, but at some point I went back and I realised what the Coltrane Quartet was doing and, well, I realised I, I started to it started to have an impact on me. And Elvin still today um, probably is my favourite. You know, people say, hey, you know, you play the drums, who's the greatest drummer in the world? You know, like, yep. like yeah, great. Um, but if I had to probably listen to nothing else, I could, I'd be quite happy to, to just listen to Elvin because he... And I got to see him too, which was amazing. Oh, as, wow. as a young kid, we went to visit my brother who'd since gone to London and we went to visit him. My father retired and we did this family holiday to England and um, and it was his, it was Elvin's 50th or 50-something birthday and he had a week at Ronnie Scott's and I went four nights in a row and it was, I mean, it, you know, it was life-changing, just totally totally about I, I thought I was going to get the big drum lesson I thought I was going to get you know you hold the stick so far back you know there's this much meat on the stick you know your index your thumbs open you know you've got this much gap here you've got these fingers here this the by the by the ninth bar of the first tune he was playing the sticks were reversed he's playing butt ends of the sticks his arms were above his shoulders, like they don't even allow that in hockey, you know. Like, <laughs> and it yeah. was thrilling. Yeah. It was so heavy. I mean, it was amazing, and it was so passionate. Like, like the 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 amount of passion and just interplay. I mean, it was just for a young kid, it was too much. Like, I just, it was incredible. Also, I saw Miles on that trip as well, which was amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had these, and at that time, too, John was, he was going, right, Donny Hathaway live, mm. Sly Stone. Like, he was just feeding me the stuff, you know. And then we'd seen these live before. I saw Weather Report, the heavy weather band, um, Pistorius, Alex Sakuna. Oh, not, not Pete Erskine? No, it was actually the band. It was the heavy weather band. Right. And they were promoting that record. And then I came, when we came back, they came out here and it was the quartet with Pistorius and Peter Erskine. Right. And, um, you know, Zoan or Wayne Shorter. And, uh, but I actually saw the heavy weather band in oh, London. Wow. You know, like, I mean, it was mind-blowing for me. Yeah. Mind, like totally. <laughs> and you add, you know, a big hash joint to that, you know. It's like for a kid it was just, it was heaven, you know. And so thrilling and, and, uh, and yeah, uh, being, being introduced 
than to, I mean, I think I've been scratching the surface back here with the sort of soul music and the R&B thing, but John was so far ahead of me and he was so well tuned with it all. He, he was just able to go, right, here's five albums, you know, take these home with you. Put these in your suitcase, man. You mm. know, like, it was just great. He was great. Mm. And, um, um, yeah, so, so yeah, that, I, I was, to answer your question, who was I listening to? I mean, I was listening to kind of every, there were so many people um, in those bands, you know, in those bands, Cobham, Lenny White, mm. you know, uh, Gordon can actually tell the story of me first hearing Billy Cobham on Inner Mounting Flame because I've forgotten exactly how it goes, but <laughs> but um, you should ask Gordy to tell you that story. I'm, I must ask him to remind me of it because it's actually quite funny. So Stevie's asked me to fill in the blanks of this story. Actually, Homo, the story wasn't about the first time you heard Billy Cobham, although Billy does feature in it. The story is actually about the first time you, or any Sydney drummer for that matter, typically encountered David Jones for the first time. And it was just a sort of off-the-cuff rave that Hamo got into and um, it was so beautifully crafted and eloquent. And I mean, I won't do it justice without Hamish's beautiful turn of phrase and delivery, but um, I'll do my best. So it sort of went something like this. After the dope smoke had cleared in the late 70s, you'd find yourself on the road with Doug Parkinson or someone like that, and you'd end up in Melbourne. You'd had a pretty good gig and you were feeling pretty good about yourself, but in reality, you were only just coming to terms with the fact that the inner mounting flame was just one drummer when some of the local musos would take you out after your gig to see David Jones and Pyramid. So that's how the story goes, as far as I recall. Yeah, so there was lots of... And also then... There was all the LA session guys. Like that was the other thing as I was growing up. It was when I came back, when I finished school, it all happened. Like the minute I got out of school, I was free. It was like this incredible, it was like a bomb ticking. I just couldn't wait for this thing to blow up. It was like, I, and because there was in Australia, there was this thing where you could leave in fourth year. Uh, Some people left two years before getting their final exam, their whatever it is, high school certificate is what we used to call it. It's called something else now. But there were guys that could leave in fourth year and sort of do a trade or whatever. And I thought, yeah, this could be my chance. But then everybody that was trying to say that was getting so much shit piled on them. I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, I'll wait this two years out. Yeah, right. And I'll practice my ass off. And that's what I did. I stayed there for the last two years and I basically didn't do anything until someone came and got me, like, Mr. Smith wants to see you in maths now. I go, okay, I will come now. <laughs> you know, otherwise I'd be up in the music department, like, practising. Right. On this pad, you know. Yep. And uh, so finally when I left school, it was just like, hallelujah, brother, you know, let the games begin. Hopefully, you know, the phone will ring or something will happen. And because it was like 1977 or something, it, it did, mm. you know, like there was gigs around and mm-hmm. there was stuff going on and I, I, um, I, was, luck, I was lucky. I mean, yeah, um, people go, oh, it's not all luck, you know, you must have been talented. Yeah, I mean, I was dedicated. I was totally dedicated. If, if you 
if I couldn't do what you wanted me to do, I'd do my darndest to get it up to that level or whatever it was they were trying to get happening and they wanted from me, I would, I would walk across hot rocks to make that happen, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I got gigs pretty well straight away. Do you remember what your first one was? Yeah, well, that, that's funny too. I mean, I'm telling you all the funny stuff because it's Good. more it's more interesting. <laughs> I got I got a call. Um, there was a band called uh, the Silver Studs, and um, they in in back in those days, you could. Um, it's like Doug Parkinson did, Dear Prudence out here, the tune Dear Prudence. I think it even came out before the White Album came out. Um, You couldn't do that today. Or maybe you could, but there was definitely a period back there when you couldn't, and there was a period when you could. And these guys, the Silver Studs, they had done a version of Happy Days, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Happy Days. And they had put that out in Australia, and about a moment later, the show Happy Days started in Australia, right. which gave them a number one more and top ten, or I don't know where it went, but it went to the top. And all of a sudden, they had more work than they could poke a stick at. So I get a call from these people saying, "You know, do you want to? Will you come on the road um, with the Silver Studs?" And I was a, I was at that stage. I would say I was a jazz snob. And I said no. <laughs> and it's probably <laughs> the first and only time I've ever said no. And uh, um, no, I have said no a couple of times, <laughs> twice, I think. Um, and uh, I said no. Anyway, the, the next day, it was the piano player rung me up. And he was someone I knew, I think. I think it's someone I think I can remember, but I'm not sure. And, uh, and he rang me back the next day and he said, listen, you're being really stupid, you know, like this is a, this is a, a, a job playing in a band, like a professional musical job. And we're going on the road, like we're doing gigs in Melbourne, we're going, you know, like this is, this would be good for you to do. And like a twit, I went, oh, I don't know about like, but, but I, 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 I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. So I did it and I met some nice, you know, they were great guys and it wasn't a bad band, but the music was hilarious. And um, I did a once round with those guys and then sort of it, it disintegrated. And um, and then I got a gig with Airs Rock, which was like an Australian sort of fusion band, if you will, uh, jazz rock band in those days. And um, And I had followed a couple of other guys, um, but predominantly the guy that was the drummer in that band was Mark Kennedy. And Mark, he was mind-blowingly good, uh, is mind-blowingly good. And that band, it was interesting because I was playing, I think, just out of school or in my last year of school, we were playing at this pub in... Paddington, and we were playing like Red Baron and uh, from Billy Cobham Spectrum album, and uh, we were doing, um, I think Boogie Woogie Waltz, which was uh, Weather Report tune, and 
we're doing all these kind of things in this pub and it was and it was full of school kids and so it was packed full of school it was just a hanging underage drinking place for school kids so that's why it was packed i mean it wouldn't matter whether we were playing Rachmaninoff it still would have been packed you know but three suburbs away in Bondi Junction as Rock was playing the same they were doing their own original music plus those two tunes in their set and they were filling the same rooms that Split Ends were filling and I was sort of scratching my head going like you know these guys have got this they've got the, the scene full like they're actually playing real you know what the jazz snob in me, like real music, you know, not just some silly pop band or, you know, of course now I don't think like that, but then I did as yep. a youngster. And um, and so when I actually got, when I got offered the gig to play with Ace Rock, I was like, I'm, I'm the wrong guy. Like I can't, I can't actually, you know, I couldn't do what Mark can do. Um, I wouldn't even try. Like back then, I sort of, I didn't understand that, Perhaps I could have brought my own thing to the job, you know, which I did get the gig and I did bring my own thing to the gig. But, you know, my initial feeling was like I'm, I'm not up to it, you know. And, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not the most courageous guy you've ever met, but occasionally I, I have, like I went along and played um, after saying to the guy, I don't think I'm, there's plenty of other guys out there that should be doing this gig, not me. And then he's going, no, no, you know, you should do it. So, okay, 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 okay. So I went to this rehearsal room. It was down here somewhere in Narrabeen. Yeah. And they were like two hours late. I was, of course, I was on time and everything. And, and then they shuffled in like so many of those guys did in those days. And actually later on, you know, hours late, yeah. we all smoked a big joint and I played a bunch of their tunes and, and, and they liked me. And I wound up playing with them for four years, and it was the be- and that was the beginning. That was really like I was on the road. Mm. I was working out, understanding what you needed in your file back. You know, what what was the cheapest thing on room service at four a.m. when you got back to the hotel, and you know, like right. all stuff. the things you needed to know. You know, yeah. where to get drumsticks in Melbourne. You know, blah blah blah. Mm. Um, and then. Um, and, and then at the same time, I'd been introduced to the studio scene as well. There was a bunch of guys here doing jingles and recordings. So I was getting my recording chops happening. Like I was, I'm very comfy in the studio. I love the studio. I'm very comfy there. Yeah. And I learned all that really early on. And then as I was saying, but the, the reason I'm saying all this is because the LA session guys, like I understood I started to understand what that was all about it was like oh that's actually that's really good like making records or mm-hmm. recording film music or you know being in the studio being trying to tr- trying to help people realize their music was that your preference back then to be in the studio then uh, well or actually all the way along I mean I I'd love to be able to say that you know the, you know like like those great session players that that said, oh, you know, I wouldn't go on the road because if I left, you know, I wouldn't get the sessions. Yeah. I, I don't think I was getting that many sessions. But, okay. I mean, we were getting, I mean, I was getting quite a few a week. Uh, but then if you talk to the guys behind me, 
like Greg Lyons and Jim Kelly and all those guys, Rex Go and all those cats. I mean, they were just, just from 9am till yeah. stumps and then they go and do the basement or something after yeah. that and then back in the studio all over town, you know. Yeah. Um, so I caught the very tail end of that. So there were still demo sessions, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, went out with... Um, once the computer thing hit, that was all over. and the, um, uh, So you could do demo sessions, um, final sessions. Um, um, people's albums. Um, and, and there were heaps of jingles, you know. There were lots of, you know, lots of that stuff had to be actually recorded. Yep. You know, by real people. Yep. And it was great, you know, it was really great. Mm-hmm. And... Um, like very funny and very Australian, like like just the scene was very like laconic and there were some real um, uh, you know there was a lot like especially when you get into the eighties when there's a lot of money, all yeah. of a sudden there's a lot of money, and there was probably always a lot of money, but there, in the eighties there was a real lot of money, and mm-hmm. the advertise especially in the advertising world. You know, there were big budgets for stuff and um, a lot of the producers, well, not a lot, just some of the ones were pretty shonky and mad and, you know, there was bottles of bourbon on the recording desk and camel planes burning away in the in the ashtrays and, you know, like it was pretty full on. And, yeah. and, it, was, and it was fun too. Yeah. And, and there was a great community. But, yeah, so that was the thing, you know, the... Uh, the actual, the idea of being a recording guy, you know, was was very in, intriguing. And um, but to answer your question, um, I always felt I love. I mean, I love playing live. I love it. I absolutely love it. And um, and then when I'm in the studio with the right people, with the right music, I just love that. And so it's why would you do one or the other it's mm. like you know it's nice to it's nice to have the opportunity to do both mm. you know mm. um and you you oh, just going off what your bio said you toured with Marsha, Marsha for a bit yeah and then you all but lost your love of music mm. and um you realized that you needed to do something um that was going to feed your soul Oh, did I? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I got that no, out I, did. Of, I got that out of a interview from the Sydney Morning Herald. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Gee, I'm being very honest to the Sydney Morning Herald. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna watch that shit. Um It was about yeah. two thousand ten, I think. You were, yeah. It's an article you were promoting your album. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. Um Yeah. Well, I mean I hit the wall. I I had um I hit the wall with uh, drugs mainly, uh, just to be totally honest, um, because growing up at that period we were, like everyone was out of it, you know, the Rolling Stones. Everyone wanted to be the Rolling Stones. Well, I wanted to be the Rolling Stones. I wanted to be all of them. Um, <laughs> Keith Richards wasn't enough for me. I wanted to be Charlie and Ronnie as well, you know. But, um, no, uh, everybody was well, – there's a lot of um, – drug taking and of course I became a casualty like so many and uh, uh, luckily I was able to get clean and sort myself out over a period of time. It took a while but I 
I got there and I'm very thankful that I did. But um, yeah, I, I think the time that you're referring to uh, was, I, I actually went to, I went to New York for the first time and I realised uh, was, this, was this after you came, you were clean? Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, clean. I've been clean yeah. for a while mm-hmm. at this point. And um, I've been doing, you know, the usual, just all the stuff that, you know, like you mentioned Marsh, I was with Marsh for four years. Mm. Um, uh, this was all after S Rock. I did Billy yep. Fields, I did Marshall Hines. Um, and again, that was some, you know, solid touring. Like when you work with Marsh, you didn't have to work. I'd come home from touring and do sessions while I was in town, might do a Friday night at some pub with somebody and, you know, but then you'd be off somewhere else with Marsh. So it was kind of permanent employment Mm -hmm. in those days where no one really does that these days, Mm -hmm. unless I guess you play with Sia or someone like that, which um, isn't my world anymore. But um, uh, but the the pop artists in those days were working all the time. Like if you're in their band, you're in their band and you could maybe um, pay pay off a mortgage or something during right. your stint with them. It was like regular employ. So after a while, when I, yeah, when, when I got clean up, I, I, I very early on, again, Mark Kennedy comes up he tipped me into this gig with Jackie Ozarski. And Jack, um, I went on to work with on and off for the following sort of 20 years. And the thing about Jack was it was all about the music. Um, it was subsistence living, like you had just enough money to sort of pay your rent. Um, from from the Jackie gig. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, like we were doing well it was in the beginning it was jump back jack. So I was it's funny looking at these odds telling you before I was cleaning out my storage and I found all these old sheets of paper of gig sheets from Jackie's stuff. Oh wow. You know, I'm going, My godfather. But um there's like five nights, we're doing five and six nights a week in a nine piece band, you know. And mm. and it was hard. We always did two sets, sometimes three. Um, or maybe I should say three sets, sometimes four, because back in those days you did that. And it was full on. It was like two drummers often and uh, a horn section and a lot of James Brown material and original things from Jack. And he was a bit of a task mas- master in a really good way. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so... What happened, I think, was, you know, I went to New York. I realised that I was hanging a lot on the trip to New York. I needed to get inspired. And I'd heard friends of mine who'd been over, musos had been over and stayed for a week or a month or whatever and come back. They'd come back and they'd just been, they'd just be practising practicing every day and just tearing into it. They'd be lit up, you know. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, I, I was feeling like that, and I came back, and and Jack's. I was already working with Jack, but it was like, okay, I'm I'm really into it, but it has to be music that turns me on. Like 
it's and that's hard it's hard to balance that uh, if you've got a wife and children and all that sort of stuff or even if you don't if you're still paying the rent and everything putting petrol in the car it's hard to commit to an artistic aesthetic in your work mm. um, in some ways um, a lot of people do it through teaching they teach and that's how they fill the tank and they create mm. and that's their sort of mm -hmm. and they and they make you know the music they want to make mm. um, I've never been big on teaching because one I think you have to be consistently there for your students like Barry was with me like I could ring him uh, Barry Woods anytime he, his whole thing was like anytime you've got a problem give me a call if you've got a problem with a seven-stroke roll, give me a call. If you can't remember what we said, give me a call. And uh, I just could never commit to that. And I've done a little bit of teaching and I've found it difficult because of, um, I think, just the amount of passion that I had isn't really being exhibited that much in the kids. Mm -hmm. Today and no, in yeah. in the youngsters today. I mean, there's so. I mean, and, and kind of why should there? I mean, it would have to be a very special person to be to commit to an instrument. I think mm. these days in mm. this world, unfortunately, because it's such an incredible thing to do. But mm. um, there's so much stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's so much distraction. I mean, even for me, or even for me. I'm constantly saying, get off the phone, you know, because mm -hmm. I'm checking people's this or that or my dates for that or this and I'm, Yep. You know, and somebody mentioned, I think it was the Mark Costa one where he said it was pre, uh, the Mark Costa podcast where he said it was pre-mobile phones and I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, you get home in the afternoon from your rehearsal or your session, you check the answer machine and you ring everyone back. Yeah. And you put it together like that. So there was two ports of call. In the morning, you get up and someone would try and get you in the morning before you got out the door, whatever it was, if you got up in the morning, if that was your thing. <laughs> and then, you know, there was the answer machine. Yep. And, and you know, in America they had the, you know, thingo service. Of you, service of the system. Yeah, where, yeah. They, where, they, where the, you'd ring the service and the service would ring the guy because they thought he was a, Atlantic Studios or Capitol, you know, the yep. thing he's there. He's there till three, I'll call him there. You know, so-and-so wants you over here tomorrow, you know. Like, yeah. I mean, it was kind of a bit more reasonable, but now it's yep. all just like if all the stuff's in the Dropbox, learn it by tomorrow and see yeah. you on the gig, yeah. you know. By the way, can you pick the bass player up? You know, it's mm. like, wow. Yeah. yeah it's hard. Um, we did a guitarist roundtable um couple of months back Peter Northcote was on that and he was talking about like these days he still prefers to get email because you know getting gigs via a text, a text yeah. or a more yeah or more so something like messenger or instagram or something like that yeah 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 um if someone doesn't sort of see that that you've seen that message then they'll go and ask somebody else yeah yeah. And because you haven't replied them, there's been times where you would go to a gig 
it's double book. Somebody else is somebody there, else you know? is there, like you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah well, I <clears throat> can get get really messy. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, the email thing's good too because you can actually flick back and go, oh, it's seven thirty start, and you know. Yeah, I think it's just the instantaneous nature of our world. Yep. You know that people, you know, can uh, expect to get a hold of you right mm. now. Yep. Just going back to, mm. you got yourself clean, gone to New York, and you wanting to look for something um, that will feed your soul. Was there? Was there anything? Like, because you 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 know you've you've gone through whatever process you have to clean yourself up and mm. whatever steps that's taken, was there like something in the back of your head saying, "Look, I don't want to go back to to that because I was sh- I was pretty shit back then. I was in a bad way. I don't want to go back there." Did you want to go in a different direction? Um, I think I've all, I just wanted to be a better version of myself. Really, yep. I so, um, I. I've always liked many styles of music. Like that's another reason probably why I've worked so much is because I'm, you know, happy to do a Slim Dusty record and yep. and actually, you know, you know, it was great. I did two with Slim and uh, um, and do an Andrew Robson trio or, you know, Phil Trelaw duets, totally free. Um, the I I actually like that music. Like I will listen to all different styles of music mm. um, in my downtime. And uh, so it wasn't so much. It, it it wasn't so much. It was probably more me than everything else. Yep. Like I think I just I'd spun I'd spun out and uh, I was in a bad way um, and. Um, also for me, like, um, um, using drugs, it was like an armor thing, you know, it was like wearing armor. Once you, once you were on it, it was like, I could pretty much do whatever was required of me, but to do it without the armor was quite tricky. So Mm. that, that was, um, what I needed to do physically Mm -hmm. and mentally and spiritually, I needed to do it because I needed to be able to invest more of myself in the music, I think. You know, like I think if you're drunk or out of it on whatever substance, or then you're not kind of, you're not really there, you know. And uh, I, I think in order for me to continue, I wanted to be able to actually get further in and understand more and understand more about myself as well while I was playing it rather than, you know, you're sort of only half there, mm. you know, if you're on some sort of substance. Was there a single moment where you had that thought that this is it? Oh, there was a few. A few, I Yeah, think. there was a few. I mean, you know, there were, there were uh, like I lost gigs and, oh, you know, I was pretty, yeah, I was pretty messy in the end and... Um, um, my own sense of justification was getting a bit thin as well. Like I couldn't really justify some of the stuff that was going on. Um, well, like losing gigs. I mean, I couldn't justify that. It was like, you know, well, you've lost the gig because you're out of it. That's why That's why they won't have you back. So, you know, that's pretty black and white. 
and then the other side of me as well is that I'm I have a kind of certain positivity about my life I mean it's like what are you doing you know like you've got all these great opportunities you've got this incredible community of people you've got these beautiful friends you've got you know a good family you know you grew up in Sydney Australia it's like what I what's wrong you know like mm. you've got to you've got to change somehow and because um, otherwise it's it's it, you know you're going to die or something you know something bad's going to happen so um it but but yeah there was a number of there was a number of things again in those pivotal moments someone says something to mm. you and it sticks or you know you hear something for the 10th time and that's the time when you go actually yeah i got it it's mm. actually yeah so um and and the music that was the other that actually that that was the thing that was the main thing because I realised that in the end what I was playing with, what I was, what was in my hand of cards was my, was music. And it had been the thing that had saved my life all the way through and I'd loved and I was passionate and, you know, talked to friends, you know, muso friends today to say, you know, you put on whatever it is, Coltrane or Stevie Wonder or whoever, you name it, and... It still turns me on like it did when I first heard it. Like when I listen to it now, it just it's like I I can't believe the thrill I'm still getting out of this stuff. So with the drug thing, it was like, do you really want to we're getting down to this card, mate. You know, like yeah. eventually you're gonna to have to put that card on the table. And do you really want to play that card? Mm. Like, can you afford to play that card? Mm. You know, like, what do you got if you ain't got that card? You know, yeah, yeah. if you haven't got music, you haven't got anything, man. Yeah. And um, that's I. That was a bit of a bolt of lightning. That was probably the last one that just went. Jesus, I hadn't thought of that. You know, like, because mm. I had this thing, like, you know, if I get, you know, I got myself in here, I'll get myself out of here, blah blah. You know, I'll work it out, blah blah blah. But, you know, I would. I think I was heading for. You know, disaster and and um, and actually, you know, I had used music to make money to buy drugs. In the end, like that was that was what I was. That's what music was about. Yep. And that scared the shit out of me. That was a, a big sort of that was a big turning point. And all those other things I think I've mentioned things along that were part of that. But when that light went on, I went, mm. God, you know, you really. You know, you're really willing to, you know, you're really willing to play that, and and I and I wasn't, and I'm not, mm. you know, I'm not because I just still to this day I'm still totally passionate about playing. You know, I mean, I'm I'm older now and I'm physically physically I can be tired and all that, so I get a bit cranky and whatever, you know, blah blah blah. But actually, when the music's playing, you know, when we're actually playing. It's a different story. I'm mm. still get. I, I I don't feel, you know, physically tired when you're actually playing. It's yep. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So back to Jackie's band. Yeah. Um. Or Jackie's bands. There Jackie's was, bands. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there was a bunch. There was like a bunch of things he was doing. Okay. He always was doing like two or three things, or at least two. Right. And they were different repertoires and. 
like one mad sort of instrumental thing with vocals and mm. instrumental thing with vocals. And, <laughs> That's a, um, and, and, and what he was doing was also introducing a whole lot of new people and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, he often had a core bunch of guys mm -hmm. and girls, but um, it was always good. It was a, always of a high caliber and they were always great players and uh, he was a great singer he was a great writer and um, he was a great instigator, you know, mm. like he put these things together. Um, Jump Back Jack was a great, a great band. And, um, and then there was like another group called the Hungarian Rap Sadists, which was this kind of mad, it was, it was instrumental, but there was lyrics and there were songs, but very, um, kind of, how can I put this? Uh, it was kind of like these happenings. We'd, we'd, he'd get this warehouse, for instance, and we'd set up there and there would be a Hungarian friend of his who painted, and he'd be painting while we were playing. But the music was quite harsh and aggressive. And um, I mean, <laughs> just these bizarre, bizarre scenes of um, Shandor, his name was the artist, and he had a, um, angle grinder uh, and it'd be cutting through steel and sending these waves of sparks, you know, in these, I mean, it could never happen today. You'd have the police to be there in one, <laughs> in one minute and it'd be just like, this is a fire prop, you yeah, know, yeah. like there's too many people in the room. Yep. There's Sydney people having a good time. What's your, what's your OH&S plan? Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. And I just remember <laughs> trying to play this music that was quite difficult and, you know, Jackie would be conducting the horns and stuff like that. And I looked down and Shandor, who also had um, a caliper on one leg, so and he could his English wasn't good. <laughs> he was Hungarian. <laughs> I mean he was he's passed away. Um and but I mean he would laugh as well, like if he was here, because it was hilarious. And I remember looking down and these sort of sheets of sparks going every now and then and then him <laughs> going back to the canvas and painting and, all, and then throwing the canvas on the ground and putting another canvas up and people singing and horns playing solos and shrieking music and stuff happening. And was this to an audience? Were yeah, you, we, yeah. In was the, a... with, the, with a live audience. Right, okay. Yeah, and so I write like the stage is sort of here, he's sort of on the stage, off the stage, and then <laughs> I look down and he is rolling around with this woman on the ground who's obviously sort of perhaps she's half quarter light or something, you know, from the sparks <laughs> or, or he's or paint's been spattered on her or something and, <laughs> and, and they're having this like physical sort of fight almost. Right. And it was just... I mean, that's just one moment. You know? Right. And I mean, and then there were great kind of musical moments where Jack would just blow you away with his playing, his bass playing, mm. singing. Like we used to do What Is Hip, you know, Tower yep. of Power. And he'd sing and play, sing. Doing the And play the. Anyway, and I'm singing Teen Town, so that's not a good idea. But anyway, What Is Hip. Yeah, so there were that. That was all trying to work out the stickings of David Garibaldi yeah, before yeah. the book came out. You yep. know, like thanks a lot, and uh, uh, and two drummers in Jump Act Jack. Mm -hmm. So that was great. Um, Who was the other drummers? Uh, there was what well, was my, in the beginning it was Phil Campbell, who's a great drummer. Uh, I think 
there was a band called the Electric Pandas, and I think he was in that band. But um, he was quite. He he was a very schooled drummer, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and yeah, we got on like a house on fire. We we I think we were good together. And I I had also I must mention um, Greg Henson, who's a great great drummer. And when I was with Marsha, he was with John English, and we did a lot of double drums together. So, and that's it's quite a thing. Like two drummers is. It can be an absolute recipe for disaster, mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of um, humility and a lot of um, respect for each guy to to pull it off. And I I did it the other night with Greg. The reason I bring Greg up is because he's and he's someone you should definitely mm-hmm. do I a podcast. Saw some of those with. videos on your Instagram. Of oh Greg. yeah, yep. man, he's he's something else. Like yep. and. Yeah, he's and he's he's another one who is from that. He's before. He's a little bit older than me, um, and uh, and he, you know, he was one of those guys. Like he was the in he played in the original Superstar, and he did all those things. He'd be in the studio all day long, and then mm. doing gigs and touring with different people, and he. He, he's played with all you know a million people and he, he's and he's got a t- stories you know he's got a million stories mm. but he's a great guy and so I he was one of the first guys I played two kits with and mm. worked out you know where the flams were happening and mm-hmm. how to make that perhaps not happen so much and you know how that how that works and the intensity of both players and understanding what that is and um, yeah, it's really amazing. So with and with Phil doing things like what is hip and those soul vaccination we used to do and with two drummers, uh, that is dangerous territory. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's dangerous yeah. with one. You know, yeah, you probably get away with it with one easier than with two. But it, that made the band a lot heavier and more powerful. So as as a kind of it was like a dance band. We did a lot of James Brown and. And with two drummers, it was just great, mm. and, and people went nuts for it. Mm. Yeah, because I mentioned earlier, you know, Jack probably introduced a lot of people to that sort of thing, and, and I think Beck Jensen was one of the first people oh, I spoke Beck. to. Yeah, and um, Jade also. Yeah, well, they um, were all played there. in Jack's band. Yeah, yeah, um, doing backing singing mm. and um, and lead taking the lead, you know, um, mm. from time to time and. Um, it was a great ground. It was a great, um, you know, it was one of the last areas where people could go and sit in. Yeah, right. And you'd get, you'd, and he would tolerate, if it was dreadful, he'd tolerate it and you wouldn't get another go. And if he liked it, <laughs> you'd come back yeah. next week. Yeah. You know, and he was like that. Mm. And it was great. And then we went on to do the Godmothers and then finally, you know, and I came and went a bit. I did Vince Jones and different people and went off and, you know, try to make a bit of money here and there and do things like that. Um, but then I just get drawn back to it because it was actually home base for me. Yeah, right. And I, I, I do, I do feel like I'm a sort of band guy as well. You know, mm. I, I, I prefer, I much prefer being in a group of people that see each other regularly, and and then you create that thing. You create. You actually create a sound that's, 
you know. I mean, I'm, I'm often, as we all are these days, brought into things that, you know, happen briefly. Someone does a record, you do a rehearsal, you do three gigs, you don't do that again, you know, like yeah, right. especially in the jazz thing, you know, right. if someone does a bunch of music and you record it and then you do three gigs, maybe do go down to Melbourne, do one night and then nothing happens. Mm. It's quite sad. So to be in a group, a regular thing where it's the same rhythm section in particular, like people playing together, like Mark Costa mentioned Margaret Ehrlich. I mean, we, Mark and I played with Margaret for a number of years, you mm. know, and Mark Mark worked me with a stick pretty much, like because right. my memory's never been great and I didn't have charts or anything in those days. We just learned the songs and he just looked around at me like, like this, you've been wondering when the bridge is, it's coming now, you know, like, and we, we got on like a house on fire and mm. it was great to play with him most nights of the week, you know. What do you call you, the famous Hamus? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a few names going around back in those days, um, <laughs> which I don't think I can actually reveal. I must ring. Okay. I must ring Mark. But we, yeah, um, it was lovely hearing his podcast today too. I must say, um, I mean, he's such a sweet cat, and and uh, one hell of a bass player. I yeah. mean, that, that's something also. Today, I was just thinking about, you know, I mean, but. You know, bass bass players make the drums sound good. You know, like the, you can have a good feel and everything, but if if you've got a good bass player, it's 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 heaven. You know, and I've got to say, I've been incredibly lucky. You know, to have the guys that have played with me and have helped me play, like the bass player, I've just had the cream of the crop. Like mm. all from the word go, pretty much, mm-hmm. and um, I'm just blown out. Like, I mean, I work with Jonathan Swartz a lot, Alex Hewitson, and Victor. You know, I mean, I don't want to start because I leave everyone out. Yeah, and and they're, and they're all like they're amazing. Like these guys, and and back in the day, like there were guys like you know Phil Lawson. These guys going back, I'm going back to the seventies, and mm. guys that I used to go and see. And and uh, Mark mentioned Doug Williams. So Doug was on a on a couple of tours with Marsha. Yeah. So I got to play with him for like months on end. You know, like these guys are amazing. Mm. You know, um, as were the drummers back then too, like mm. Greg Tell, who played with Doug, and um, you know Peter Fig. Yeah. I mean, there's just there's Russell Dunlop. There's so many these guys that were an influence on me. When I was a kid, like the, um, I think it was Mark mentioned going to see Barry Leaf or whatever, you know, you, well, his, it would be Russell Dunlop playing the drums. I mean, who I got to know very well as the years went on because I was in the studio. He used to work out of Albert Studios a lot in King Street and I was in there quite a lot. So I got to know him and hang with him a lot. Mm. Now, he was just a great, great R&B drummer, like, mm. Just killer, backbeat, like meat and potatoes. Just make it happen. No, no sort of. I don't feel like it tonight. It was like, man, every time I just never heard him play anything. I didn't want to stand up. Mm. <laughs> it just made me stand up. You yeah. Know? Just oh fuck. I've got to get closer to that. Yeah. That's just 
amazing. So, yeah, lots of those guys. But, yeah, the bass, bass players, amazing. I've had an incredible run with yeah. bass players. Um, since we're still – since we're talking about bass players, what's your approach to playing with a bass player? Okay. Do you, um, under, do you understand that, what I mean by that question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, I – I um, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm of the school of uh, the time feels an agreement. Uh, and then I just try and play the best time I can play on the day or night. So I play, try and play the most in time. <laughs> I, I, I do my best, yep. you know. I... I um, if someone says, you know, maybe we should lay this back or whatever, I'm kind of, I'm a bit dubious of that stuff. I, I, th I think often if the drum, I, you know, if you want it to be slower, that's a different thing. If, if like um, beats per minute slower, and I'm not talking about playing with a click, although that could be the case, but you know, say if we're using a click to reference a tempo and putting something down about 90 beats per minute or 120, whatever it is, and someone's saying, we've all sit back on it. Well, I think, yeah, but I think the drums need to kind of... And even just saying that is enough without me trying to go, oh, I'm going to have to try and move my back beat back yeah. a bit, and but not you know, get a wobble on or something, you know, like in terms like um, a dip in, you know, a verse slowing down or something coming in, of course, just to sort of maintain the pocket is what I'm about. Mm. And then there's different, there's been different guys will, like those guys will play up on, uh, the bass players will play up on the time, like they'll play like um, uh, they're vigorous in their playing. Uh, in their approach to the the meter and and then I like for instance and I'm not saying that Victor's vigorous but I would say that Victor's really accurate and he's incredibly rhythmic mm. so like when you play with well when I play with Vic it's like it's so easy to slot in because it's so it's so groovy and it's just all the subdivisions are, are groovy. Like it's not even sort of, t I mean, they are correct, but you don't think correct, you just think groovy. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to play with him. For me anyway, it's really easy. And and um, that's what I mean by sort of vigorous. Vigorous is probably a silly word, but, um, but he, and the notes are kind of a little shorter and it's mm -hmm. a bit more like that James Brown, thing like every instrument is a drum meaning mm -hmm. every rhythm that's played whether it's a trombone part or or a guitar leak it's all like it's actually should be able to tap it out on your thigh so every instrument is part of that we're good yeah oh sorry i've, oh, yeah, I've got a noise um so every instrument is part of that that like fits into the rhythmic um grid let's mm -hmm. say and then there's other guys that actually play will kind of hang off the back 
which is a beautiful feeling when you're listening to it. But unless you're ready for it as a drummer, I think sometimes it's a bit like, hey, can you give me a hand here? You know, like it's yeah. it's sort of, it's like, oh, okay, there's a little bit more responsibility on my part to keep it ticking, like, you know, really to, to make sure that we're not going backward. And then they can make the notes a little bit longer or they can actually be a bit more behind which is again as i said you know that when you're a listener it's actually a really beautiful thing mm -hmm. um and when you're a drummer you just for me if i if i if i kind of am seduced by that it all goes down the gurgler because i go back with them you know because i go oh yeah it's not this feels nice and it's relaxes right back and then the tempo slips back and it's all over yeah you know so and that happens a lot um i mean i've only that that to me is like a, I've noticed in like, ball, you know, playing jazz ballads with brushes, for instance, there's some guys, the bass players will really, I call it, sort of put a bit of pepper on it so that the quarter note, doesn't matter how slow it is, they, they really snap that thing, even if the note's long and soft and gentle, but they really put it in, it's really there. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it is an agreement between the drums and bass and it is something that's happening with two people rather than it being, the other one is sort of, I'd say in that situation, sort of being, that they can paint the notes on, mm. which is, again, um, as a listener, it's, be it's beautiful. Like I, I look at, listen to people like Charlie Hayden, I think he, he does that, you know, like they're these beautiful uh, kind of almost rubato sort of bass lines where the drums are kind of keeping the tempo happening and and the bass is able to move around but again you have to be you sort of have to go oh yeah that's that's what we're up to today sort mm -hmm. of thing or tonight or in this group or whatever so yeah that's i guess that's my thing i just try and play as good as i can you know good good meter good feel good dynamics you know good groove you know just do do yeah, do what I can. Um, I mean, it's funny, I did a sex session for um, Rex ages ago, um, well, ages, last year, and there, it was funny because there was a singer-songwriter guy and there was a click track. And so I just, my th my usual thing in that situation is nail, try and nail the click track because you don't know what's going to happen after mm -hmm. you leave. You know, they might chop it up or... Replace you, know, you or, or Yeah, or, <laughs> exactly. I know that's going to... I said, I, sometimes you don't know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. No. Um, but, yeah, so you try and nail the click. But then everybody else had been playing sort of really back on the click. And I remember Rexy sort of saying, you know, can you play back on the click? And I was like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm just trying to. I just have that headset, like just do the right thing. Mm. But then, of course, when I shifted back, it sounded like music, you know. Mm. So yeah, that's that's I guess my approach, and be really nice to them because they because <laughs> you need them, you know. Yeah. If you can buy them a drink now and then, that's good. You know? Yeah, that's send good. them a Christmas card. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um. 2010, you released your first solo album. First. First. First and only solo album. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. say that. Yeah, no, I did. Yeah, I know yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Someone else's child. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. How okay. that came about, and right. how long you'd been thinking about that. Okay. Well, we'll be quick because it's really our history now. But I did okay. enjoy it, 
um, uh, that was strangely, I had no, I had no um, idea about doing a solo album at all. Mm. And I had this Wurlitzer was in the studio at Megaphone where I used to record for um, all sorts of different people. And so, and I had a good relationship with um, Shane Fay, who owned it and uh, the studio. And, and so I left the Whirly there and um, had made a lot of records. I, lo- I love that room. I just, it was a big old room upstairs in this sort of industrial complex in St. Peter's. And it was old, old school recording. Our Midnight Oil used to record there. Oh, they right. actually, it was their studio. They right. kind of decked it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say decked it out in typical Midnight Oil form, it wasn't very decked out. <laughs> you know, uh, and I mean that in the nicest way. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it was very simple. But a tape machine and great desk. And, and, um, and I'd done a lot of recording there with all sorts of different people. Um, and and Shane was going to close the studio and he said, you know, you've racked up all this time sort of on the Wurlitzer, like as, as I mean, I can either give you some money or you can have a couple of days in the studio sort of thing for the use of the Whirly because a lot of people had used it. Mm. And I'm like, oh, really? Oh, oh gee, oh, okay. Oh, mm. What am I going to do about that? And then... Um, I thought initially I thought maybe I should donate the money uh, the time to uh, um, a band that I work in like the Catholics or Andrew Robson Trio or Lucy Thorne or someone that I've worked with regularly and um, that I'm part of the family and I thought you know that might help the budget a bit and you know whatever and then I was talking to Dave Symes about it uh, Dave was uh, the bass player with Jackie Ozarski when Jack went on to the piccolo bass. Mm-hmm. Dave Symes came in and played bass. Dave plays with Boy and Bear now. Mm-hmm. And we played together with Jack for years and years. And he's a very good friend of mine. And and he went, what are you talking about? Like, write some music and record some music. And I went, oh, write some music and record some music. Like, really? You know, should I try and do that like Mm. I mean I'm I'm not uh trained uh I don't play the piano you know so um I thought about it and I thought and he was quite you know aggressive about it It was like come on man you know like Mm. just you know you you can you can do it like you can do something you know like make something happen you know like think about it at least think about it um so I did think about it, and uh, uh, and it was at the time when the invasion was the Iraq invasion was about to happen. With you know George Bush was about to right. send the troops into Iraq, and there was Hans Blick was in Iraq looking for weapons of mass destruction, and it seemed like the whole world was uh, saying, "Well, there aren't any weapons, so you Americans better not do it." You know, like the there seemed to be this worldwide opinion. And even Hans Blick was sort of going, well, we're trying to find them, but we can't seem to find them. And the, they say they're here, but we, they don't seem to be here. And when we go to look at these things, they're not weapons of mass destruction. And 
And so I had this whole kind of thing like, well, it probably won't happen, you know. And, of course, it did happen. Mm. And it really flipped me out. It actually, mm. it quite, it sort of upset me more than I thought it would. It was like the end of a sort of some kind of naivety on my part um, that against this world opinion that these Americans would just kind of go in and do this thing. Mm. Anyway, so that was actually in the back of my mind when I started the process, which was just sitting around. I had two cassette players in my shed and I would, and I had Barney McCall's Roads and, uh, and I would sing lines and play bass lines and onto one thing and play it back and play chords and do this. And I had ideas for who would play what and, and who would, do this and this bit would be for you and this bit would mm. be for him and I'd get him to solo on that and we'd get to this bit and that had happened. It was kind of more textual and, mm. and you know, there's melodies on it and stuff like that. And I've got many copies here that I can give you. Oh, I've been listening to uh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, Love uh, the cymbals. Yeah, Love I mean, it. they're all, I think, Lauritz and cymbals actually mm-hmm. from Adelaide. Um, but... Um, yeah, I just, I kind of had a go and it was great. It was actually a great experience. And one of the most amazing things was um, that I took away from it was um, that, you know, when I go into the studio for you, I'm desperate to make you happy. Like I'm, my absolute aim is to play the thing or to whether you want you've come up with it or I'm coming up with it for you to go oh man that's just 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 so what I wanted I, I couldn't be happier with what the drums are and I'm that is my goal like with a singer songwriter if they're happy um that's my thing and 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 in, you know instrumental music the same thing is just to 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 do the right thing and when I recorded these things, where we did a lot of rhythm tracks are all live, um, the, incre- the amount of care that was reflected back to me from everybody else was amazing yeah. to me. Like right. to have that, what I do for yeah. every day of the week, or not every day of the week, but you know wherever possible for another artist to have that same sort of thing that they respected me that much to like, I remember talking to Ben Houtman one night and he was doing like an overdub on a solo and he'd done about 15. I was going, man, like there's, there's 10 great ones there. And he looked at me and he was kind of short and he said, I'm just trying to play something really great for your record, you know? And I went, Oh, okay. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> shit, you know, sorry. Yeah. And it was such a beautiful, like, I mean, I was blown out with the first five takes and he was like, right. still like, you know, I just think I can get this thing, you know. And I was like, wow, man, you really care that much, you know, like about little old me, you know, like it was really beautiful. That's good. And Jack, it's, you know, one of the one of the last things he did too, like to have him singing on it. And the thing that Jack did was that he, I had, I had, written or sung this melody which was sort of basically 
to be sung as ours, you know. And Jack came to the studio and he said, um, oh, I hope you don't mind, Brother Hain, but I wrote some lyrics, you know. I bring some lyrics for your song. You know? I hope you don't mind, I wrote some lyrics. I said, I wrote some lyrics? Of course I don't mind. Well, I mean, I'd like to see the lyrics, but you wrote some lyrics. And he said, yeah, I, I don't really want to sing. Ah, 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 I went, okay, great. And, uh, and then when he, um, when he sang them, and when I saw them written down, they were absolutely beautiful, most beautiful. And, and what was funny was that tune, Someone Else's Child, was actually, that was the main Iraq thing feeling for me it was trying to create this sort of sense of longing and sadness and just this sort of like disappointment and not being able to understand how the world you know man's inhumanity demand like are we still here sort of mm. you know are we still doing this crazy shit you know mm. and and jack didn't know that like I hadn't told him that, I hadn't told anyone that actually. I, I was just asking him to do these things. Yep. You know, Matt, uh, Matt um, Odignon wrote the sax parts that I'd sung into, you know, melodies that I'd sung into the Walkman and stuff like that, you know. And and the lyric is that Jack wrote was just, it couldn't have been more poignant for exactly what I wanted, you know. Mm. and. You know, and, and that was completely by serendipity or whatever you call it, you know, like not a word spoken. And that to me is just amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a great, it was a great process. But um, I w I'm hoping to do something new this year uh, if I can just elbow out some time. You know, because mm. it, it is really time consuming for me because I do it like that. Right. You know, I, I'm, I can't sit at the piano and go, you know, write songs. Mm. It, it's, it's painstakingly right. a long process for me. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. cool, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, so some of the, the bands and acts you're playing with, at the moment, um, Don Walker. Oh yeah, Don. Yep. Man, yeah. Um, you're part of Jade McRae's band. Yeah. Yep. Um, Lucy, Lucy Thorne. Have you got mm -hmm. her there? Yeah, she's great. Yeah. Well, that's 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 now, um, and we've just got a, and also Jonathan Swartz, Barney McCall. Barney's last, oh, he puts out a record every week, <laughs> just about. Um, great records they are too. Mm. And uh, Jonathan, that, that you play on? Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, not not that I play. I played on one of his a um, couple of years, a year ago, I think, which mm -hmm. was um, um, really great, great experience. I mean, I love him. He's mm -hmm. an incredible musician, been a dear friend for a long time. And Jonathan Swartz, of course, has put out a bunch of records that I've been on. Um, but yeah, Don, are they, and they're jazz instrumental, more more instrumental uh, records. Uh, but yeah, Lucy Thorne, I've been with for years now, uh, seven or eight years. She's a singer songwriter from Tassie. I absolutely love 
her dad's a poet, Tim Thorne, and I love her poetry and I just love her take on music. Uh, she's just done a more kind of poppy record. The last record's got much more sort of just straight up grooves, but the ones before that are much more atmospheric and uh, delicate, let's say. Um, yeah, so she's had a very big sort of change in direction. Um, but I've been really into that and we've toured like thousands and thousands of kilometres all over Australia, right. the two of us. We just do a duet, so drums, electric, guitar and vocal, which is amazing. Mm. Um, uh, up until this last record where she's added a bass player um, and we're about to go to Tassie with Chris Abrahams from The Next and other groups. Um, and myself and Lucy, so it'll be keyboards, piano, keyboards, drums and guitar and vocal. It's kind of odd sounding. It's nice having no bass in, at yeah. times. Yeah. Um, uh, as much as I love the bass, it's interesting when it's not there. Mm -hmm. uh, for the drums especially, because it gives you the complete spectrum of that point mm. of end. And I'm sure they would say the same about the drums. <laughs> uh, uh, as I do too with drumless music, I, I love it. Yeah. Um, uh, Don Walker's band is unbelievable. Like that is um, that is firstly a great band. Uh, we, we've had a, a serious loss along the way with the uh, passing of Glenn Hanna, the guitar player, um, who died last year, and uh, he was an important guy, a guitar player in the band. And he was also the band of Tamworth. Country Music Festival. Yeah, that's that right. Bill's yeah, the off. Bill's right? Yep. Yeah, that's okay. right. Uh, and I also got Glenn into Darren Percival's gig because he's just incredible and and just such a beautiful cat to hang out with as well as being a, a ridiculous guitar player. Yeah. But in Don's band, um, there's so there's a baritone guitar and another electric guitar which is at the moment Chris Parks has been playing guitar with us from the Yearlings in Adelaide. Uh, and Michael Vidal playing bass. Roy Payne plays the uh, baritone guitar and guitar. And uh, Garrett Costigan on pedal steel and Don. So it's very luxurious, like, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of stringed instruments and he doesn't cut corners with that, so we don't go out on the road with two guys. It's like, I, I, and I guess he can afford to do that, so uh, he does. And, um, and his, you know, I'm constantly in awe of his songwriting. The more and more, the more I play with him, I mean, I, he gave me, his latest book, which is songs, which is just his lyrics. And typically there's a bunch of songs I've been playing where I've been humming along in my head while I'm playing them and I've got the right words wrong. And, you know, to have his correct... I should tell him, actually, that my words are better. No, <laughs> um, no uh, to, to, to see his lyrics are just mind-blowing, you know. Uh, he's really something else, mm -hmm. and he's a stickler. Like he doesn't, he doesn't let anything out until it's got hundred yeah, percent right. red tick on the title, and then he's ready to let it let it come to a rehearsal or yeah, go to wow. Chisel or wherever it goes, so, mm. or anywhere he writes for any every, everyone. But um, mm. 
yeah, he's he's and a great human, like amazing guy to spend time with. As is the whole Don Walker and the Suave fucks. It's mm-hmm. a great time. Um, like when we're on the road or in the studio, it's just it's magnificent. So yeah, um, Barry Leaf, I did a gig with him the other night. It's always great, always great band. And Bill was doing it. Lovely to see him. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the Catholics. I mean, there's a bunch of bands like I've been with the Catholics for a hundred years. That's a great mm. uh, Sydney-based original music band led by Lloyd Swanton. Mm-hmm with all the greats from Sandy Evans and James Greening and all these sort of great, Fabian Hevia, the percussionist. Yep. You know, incredible. Again, like, I'm lucky to be in that company. Like, they're great, great musicians, Gary Daly and Jonathan Peace and, you know, Lloyd. These, as a bass player, you know, incredible, just incredible. Mm. So, yeah, um... And again, we're off overseas with Jade this year and a little bit more Beatle music apparently throughout the, you know, in July hopefully. And mm. um, uh, and then Lu- we've got Lucy Thorne and, and I think the Suave Fucks with Don, we're going to be doing some touring uh, this year. I did, I did say to him that, you know, Chisel's put out a new record, so you'll probably be busy this year. And he went, no, yeah. we're only doing X amount of gigs. and we'll Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's, it's done. Yeah, well, apparently, apparently it's done, yeah. but I, I've st- I'll, I'll wait till I get the call for the for us <laughs> to go out before I yeah. sign that one off. But, yeah, yeah no, I'm, if, if that happens, that'll be just so great because mm. that's – I mean, we really do. We look forward to that. And, and uh, yeah, um, and we're currently touring with this um, Mike Knock, Jonathan Swartz, Julian Wilson, mm. Amy Stewart album that's just come out. That's got a tune on it. I, I wrote a tune for that because Jonathan said we all had to write a tune. So, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I came up, again, you know, singing in the two different – well, no, I'm on Pro Tools now, so it's a bit easier. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we're we're off to Brizzy on the weekend actually, and then Byron. So that'll be good, uh, and has been good. Like that's amazing again, playing in that quartet. Yeah, like, it's mm. very different, very spacious, and mm. very free to to play whatever you think is appropriate with within the bounds of taste. I always say, mm. in those situations, you know, you can play anything you like within the bounds of taste mm. regarding the music that you're playing. Mm. So, yeah. I want to ask you about drum tuning. Okay. Um, from what I've read and people I've spoken to, that's kind of a big thing for you and you're kind of known for that, I think. Really? Mm. Am I really? Gee, so I, what's your... I wouldn't have known that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah I right. wouldn't have known that. I mean, yeah. it's an absolute mystery to me. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I've been playing Gretsch drums for most of my life, apart from two Capricorn kits that John right. Proud made for me, which are just absolutely, my God, they are beautiful drums. Mm. But I've been a Gretsch guy all, all the way along, uh, pretty much. Um, I do have a Ludwig kit and I do have a, well, sort of have a Rogers kit. And uh, bits and pieces, blah, blah, blah. Uh, 
and I think the old Gretsch drums were harder to tune than any other drum. Right. Um, they just have a whole personality of their own, which is why I'm also drawn to them because I quite like the fact that they're a bit mad. And uh, <laughs> But when they're on there, to me, they're the best sounding drum. Um, yeah, I, I've probably read about, I've, I've read everything there is to read on drum tuning. I think I've sat through the most boring drum tuition, tuning tuition things on YouTube. Right. You know, top head, bottom head, blah, blah, blah. Mm. You know, drum resonates happily at a certain pitch, you know, la, 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 you name it. Detune two lugs, uh, you know, tune a third above with a fifth above with mm. the bottom head, you know, all these kind of raves. And um, I basically, my thing is uh, with the toms, for instance, I try and tune uh, both heads the same. I try and find the, the pitch that the drum is happiest at unless I need it to be somewhere else. Um, and then I dampen. Okay. So, so I will, I'm notorious 70s guy, I'm gaffer and loo paper. Okay. You know? Yep. Um, I have been using some of the gels lately oh, yeah. because it's much nicer than wandering around with wads of toilet paper in your hand through a club or something. All stuck to the back of your yeah, pants. Yeah, exactly. They Get all, people talking. Yeah, they, exactly. <laughs> they're all wondering what on earth that guy is doing. Yeah. Um, but uh, so... Um, yeah, so I, I tend to dampen a bit, but that's my thing. That's Well, not my thing. That's the 70s, you know, like the Russ Kunkel and, you know, Picaro and everybody, that sort of. And you're even like the Motown guys and Muscle Shoals and let's get down into that area. It's just thuddy centre and I just, that's, I love that. Yeah. I just love that. And then, of course, there's the complete opposite with someone like Elvin Jones where the, or, or um, Max Roach where the toms are just, you know, like ding-dong, like piano yeah. notes. And, yeah. uh, um, and, the, and, the, and it's very tuneful. It's very melodic. So I, I also love that as well. And I'm interested in, in that, mm. you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess I do... I, I mean, I'm tinkering with the tuning, tuning. I'm tinkering and I'm tuning. I'm tinkering <laughs> and I'm tuning all the time. Yep. And also, um, I think in the studio, it's always been like just such a great playpen for drummers mm. in terms of sound and being able to mess around with bass drums and make them, you know, open them up and have them sound long and or just take the front head off and pack them full of everything and make them sound like Al Jackson. And, yep. You know, like just there's this great palette in the studio and you can, you, you're not bound so much by an acoustic venue space, you mm -hmm. know, where there's people and you are, you are actually going to hear the sounds that you create in the studio, whereas you're probably going to feel them more in a, in a gig. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my. I think. I mean, yeah, tuning. It's a. It's. It is to me. It's a mystery. It's still a mystery. Yeah, and, I, right. and I. And I. You know. I would. I would say that. Uh, 
it's it's funny that you say that that anyone thinks that about me because I think I'm const- every time I hear a set of drums I'm going well that sounds interesting well, how they did that you know like <laughs> you know you hear Gordy play I mean I heard on the podcast or whatever it's just like oh yeah they sound good they're the Yamahas for sure you know they're his Yamahas I know that I mean I I know they're his Yamahas but yep. I I know that, that that's his sound and, yep and that it's a beautiful sound I mm-hmm. think that's yeah. Um, but yeah, also I guess songs. I mean, I've been I've been doing it a long time. Um, I've been playing on people's songs, so I think to to make the drums sympathetic to the song that you're playing, um, I'll tune between takes. Even if I'm thinking, okay. if I'm hearing something, and sometimes I won't, even, you know, I won't say won't stuff. say anything. Yeah. 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 Because really, most people, I mean, unless it happens a week later when they're listening to take one and take six and they go, hold on a second, what happened to a snare drum? It's just just dropped like a bell, you know, and uh, they might get a bit pissed off about that because they might go, actually, that's the take we want, but we wouldn't have minded the sound on that take before he tuned everything down. Did you see him change his snare drum Yeah, exactly, yeah. He said he dropped a stick. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. All of that. You yeah, know. and I'm, I mean, I'm probably, oh, look, I, I bet we, I'm probably the only one silly enough to be on, honest enough to say that I, I'm, I, I'll do this stuff just because I think it's part of my gig. You know, it's yeah. my, it's my instrument. I'm, I'm going to change unless someone says I think that snare drum needs to be a bit brighter. I go, oh, really? Do you? Hmm. Mm. Okay, okay. You know, well, it's your gig, you know, yep. sure. Yeah, Well, it sounds like the reason you're on those gigs is because it, part of that reason. I think yeah, maybe. Well, yeah. I think so. Look, I think good. everybody's on the gig because it's um, the, the artist feels good or they've been told that it's going to work with this person, you know. Mm. like, I mean, my... my uh, I, I don't want to start getting into heroes, but, you know, like one of them's Keltner and I've just, mm. I mean... I haven't heard of anything he's ever played on that hasn't just made me jump for joy, you know, like I just and he's one of the guys that is constantly doing bizarre shit. Like you know, when Chad Wackerman was living here, um he was here for ten years and um we, we spent quite a bit of time together chatting and hanging out and um and he told me some great, you know, things about like um, Jim Keltner turning up for sessions with, you know, four ride cymbals. You know, like no, sort of not a crash or anything, but just these four big 22-inch rides. You yeah. know, like, like, okay, you know, okay, well, I guess that's what he's going to be playing. And he would have had some idea. Like, I don't know if he knew, even knew the music that he was going to be playing. Right. Like he just thought, this is what I'm going to use today. Yeah. I'm going to make music with that. <laughs> And also, uh, there's a similar story that somebody told, uh, um, uh, but it's the same thing with Jim that Chad told me that he he came in. He came in to a session in LA, and uh, they just had Keltner in the studio, and they were just finishing, you know, off, and and the drum tech was setting Chad's drums up, and uh, and the producer knew Chad and he said, you've got to listen, you've got to listen to this. 
and they played, they soloed the drums. It was Abe. And they soloed, oh no, it might not have been. But they soloed, he did say that about soloing drums with the click, which they always yeah. they always used to do that. You'd sit there like nail-bitingly going, <laughs> yeah. just waiting for that one snare hit that would send us all back into the studio, just one fill that was a little <laughs> bit, just like, please, please, God, let me get through this. Every, and you could feel everybody else going, I just want to have lunch, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and they they play this thing, and the click's going like whatever it's doing, and uh, and the drums are just it's, it was a Steve Gadd story on on it, it was Gordy yeah. yeah yeah well this one's um, Jim and it's all over the shop it's like like Chad was just laughing it was like who is who is this you know mm. like who would do this I mean yep. who would even have a click on if you're going to do that yeah and then they punched the whole track in and it sounded amazing yeah and he turned around and went Jim and it was just like wow mm. I mean that's magic mm. you know to me that that stuff is like how you that's like another level it's like <laughs> Elvin Jones you know there's there's actually more happening. And Simon Barker's another one, you know, he'd be a good guy to, to do a podcast with. But mm-hmm. I remember hearing Simon once um, play and I, I said to him, you know, you've attained this kind of thing where it's like physically what you're doing on the drums isn't actually what's now being heard. Like there's something more it's been created by you, but it's not actually. Now I'm sure if David Jones was here, he'd say no. That's important. I don't know. He, <laughs> yeah. He'd probably pull me up. But <laughs> but but Simon, the night I saw him was playing, it was just like, to me, it was it was something. There was something else apart from the the physical aspect of sticks and feet, you know, and uh, or brushes or whatever. And I and I, f- I feel the same way about Elvin. I feel the same way about Keltner too. It's just like they create, they get this. It's almost like the, the the stuff that they're not playing. It's like the gaps. Maybe I'm here as I get older. I'm hearing the gaps better than I have in yeah, the past, well, or something. That uh, something's different, and and I hear it in these great great players, and it just blows me away. Mm. As someone mentioned, I think it's. I think Mark mentioned it in his one, you know, that the only thing you, well, you mentioned it, the only thing you can count on is change and and the music business has definitely changed and we have to change with it or Mm. get another gig. You know, like Mark said, you know, Mm. like you're going to go into IT. Well, I'm definitely not going into IT. Yeah. I always say I'm, I'm hoping that the, that I can work with the old model and that is that someone rings me up and asks me to do a gig, I go and do it and they pay me and I come home, you know. Mm-hmm. If I can get through my life in with that sort of vague operation happening around music, that'll that'll be great. You know, yeah. I don't I don't really want to um yeah, I can't see myself doing anything else and uh I can't imagine that changing though, not Especially not with the people that you're playing with, and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, I can't see it. Sort mm. of. I mean, it's it's hard. It's interesting. Like, um, you know, the idea of um, our, our our rights as uh, workers. You know, I know that sounds all very 
you know, left-wing politics or whatever, <laughs> you're socialist, kind of communist almost, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the idea of um, making sure that, well, I think, you know, kids going out and doing gigs and not getting paid um, after we all fought to get paid. Well, I didn't fight to get paid. I was already getting paid, but somebody fought for me to get paid and and, uh, and then I, I, I put my 10 cents in worth, 10 cents worth in um, saying, you know, along the lines of, yeah, okay, we make enough bread now, we should all have single rooms or whatever, you know, like, or, you know, we, it should be fair, we should be treated fairly and, and I, I, but, but the game seems to be changing so fast. It's like if you actually wrote something down and sent a letter somewhere, an email somewhere, it'd be different by the time it hit their inbox, you know, so it's very tricky. I think you've just, you know, I was talking about Peter Northcote. I mean, there's a guy who did a billion sessions and, um, um, probably outlived most of us as, as sort of session guys, you know, um, uh, in terms of working as a session guy. Um, but, you know, I think we just, I was talking to him the other night on Barry's gig, it's like every gig you get, it's like a negotiation. Yeah, it's, like right. every, it's like every session, it's can you do this for that? And then you're going, oh, okay. Well, oh, wow, I didn't think they were going to pay that much. Or, mm. oh, no, I actually do have to get paid. This is what I do for a living. You know, like it's it's kind of quite bizarre that there's no set fee or something or other. You know, we're all just out there batting for ourselves. Or When did that start to change, do you think? Well... Do you remember, you remember the time? I, I, the I don't moment? know. I mean, I, I, I played in so many bands that, mm. and the bands, they kind of... It was like, this is what you got. You know, if you right. got, if you came in the band this week, if you if you work for Marshall Hines, you got X amount per gig, and if you did six gigs, you got this at the end of the week. You know, right. whatever. Uh, and that was that was okay. It was sort of take it or leave it, and and um, that was fine, and it was kind of reasonable. And occasionally you'd look out and you go, these people are cleaning up, you know. And then you think, yeah. yeah, but I agreed to that, and that's and I was happy with that. So yep. that's what what I've agreed to. So that's cool. Um, once all that started to disintegrate and you're out on your own as a freelance guy, which I was by the time I was with Marsha, I mean, I was there as a freelance guy. Mm-hmm. Sort of Airs Rock was the last band I played in. Yep. Um, then you're out fighting for yourself. But there was a musicians union at that time mm. that I was a member of and paid my fees every five years. I'd pay some exorbitant amount of money. Um, uh and it wasn't, it never really, uh, I shouldn't say it never helped me, but because I was part of something that was perhaps helping other people. So that's a good thing. But certainly now there's, uh, I think, I can't remember what initials it is, but it's like the Actors and Musicians Guild, or it's not Guild, that's an American term. Um, whatever it is, the, I can't remember what it is, but it's a, it's like a union um, but I'm not a member of that because mm. um, purely because I've sort of fought my own battle since the Musicians' Union stopped or since I left the Musicians' Union. 
um, I've just done my own kind of business and I um, haven't been uh, blatantly ripped off mm. throughout that time. Um, but it would be nice to be able to seek some advice. I'm sure if you went, you know, there, there, there would be avenues that you could go to to seek advice with um, pay scales and things like that. Mm. Um, although, once again, I'm not, I'm not terribly involved in that area so much. You know, I'm more in, you know, either with jazz things that, that have, are basically funded by grant grants or whatever or a little bit of money that someone's put away to record their record um or it's a band that gets paid x for playing in a venue that pays them whatever it is and it's split yep fairly amongst the group mm. you know usually mm. so yeah interesting yeah so the business yeah it's it's totally different it's changing all the time and 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 i think we um have to change I have to change with it whatever that means and it's to date it's um, it's just meant to me it's probably meant a certain a little bit less work but um, but that's kind of okay as well mm -hmm. for me at, at my stage of the game where I am now you know like I'm, I'm sort of I'm kind of a little bit more set up now than I was back then and my overheads aren't so high you know I'm not trying to pay a house off anymore I'm you know like I'm kind of I'm out the other side of all of that um, and I'm also trying to play music that I love to play so that's actually that's where I'm getting the, the payoff I mean I need to pay my way as well but mm. it's it's not quite as it's not quite as drastic as it was. Mm. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Stewart, thank you so much for being on the Gig Life podcast. Oh, mate. I'm honoured, mate. I really am. Um, yeah, just... Thanks for having me. It's been, been great night. been great having That's a good. chat to you. Um, dinner was awesome. <laughs> good. Thank I'm you glad. very much. If nothing else, dinner yeah. was good. Vegan? Yeah, it was Megan the Vegan tonight. Yeah. Very yeah, nice. we're doing vegan all month. Yeah, nice one. Scary. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, Hamish. All right, thanks, all right. mate. See you, man.
was gonna pin me down But I'd sure like you to come around Yeah, if only you could come 